Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Well, it's good to be here with you. We're in the book of Hebrews, um, jumping into uh, kind of the middle portion of the second chapter uh, in our time here uh, together. So let's go ahead and read Hebrews 2, uh, verses 5 through 13. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he may take death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you come and draw near to our hearts as we jump into this text. Uh, Let us see the beauty that is here. Lord, we just ask ahead of time that you would uh, break down shame. Let us see the beauty of becoming sons and daughters. Draw us to you. Draw us to the blessing of what Christ has done. May we see it clearly. May we worship accordingly. Uh, Father, thank you for your mercy. We pray this in your name. Amen. So there's an old... uh, saying to describe preaching, and it goes something like this. The job of a preacher is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, both. Uh, Both are required to balance a healthy ministry in the pulpit. And and what we're going to find in the book of Hebrews is the author of Hebrews understood this well, because he seems to alternate between long passages of comfort to our affliction uh, with short sections of affliction to our comfort and leading us into, into really what are some maybe disturbing warnings or exhortations for us to pay attention to. So, so far he's comforted the afflicted in the suffering um, group in Hebrews chapter 1. And he lays out in this comfort to them the superiority of Christ. Christ is their savior and their king thoroughly. He's going to show the superiority superiority of Jesus, showing how Jesus is the better revelation or prophet. Jesus is the better king. He is the better priest. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the inheritor and owner of all things. Uh, And Christ is the one who's finished a great work. And after his completion of that work, he, in the fullness of what he had done, was able to sit down because it was done. And the emphasis were it was for believers to take comfort in the great Savior. Look at who he is and look at all that he has done. Take comfort in this Jesus. But then in chapter 2, specifically in verses 1 through 4, where we were at last week, the author switches into the affliction. And he says clearly to anyone who would hear, we, uh, this would be to all believers, specifically the Hebrews hearing it, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard or we will drift from it. The human heart is prone to wonder 
So we must fight drift. We must behold the great Savior uh, and the gospel over and over and over again. If we do not behold it and if we neglect this great salvation and the warning, he basically says, who can be saved from judgment if they neglect this? And that was the heavier affliction part. And then he's going to move right back into comforting in the text that we are into uh, today. So the group of believers, the original uh, audience of this book, they were suffering greatly under persecution. So imagine um, the weight that they must have felt going from exhilaration with joy and feelings of fresh new love and excitement over their Savior, going from that to, to sorrow and anxiety and uncertainty because their new faith that, that was so joy-filled for them at the beginning was all of a sudden causing them quite a bit of pain. Imagine how kind of disorienting this must have felt and how insignificant and confused they must have felt from the, the, the change of, of high highs to, to this new low. What the, what the author dives into, instead of avoiding like many people probably would in light of this tension, is what do we do uh, with the doubts that come our way when we suffer? This is what the people who are reading it would need to hear, and this is what we need to hear. What do we do with our doubts that come when we suffer and we feel pain? There's no one with a decent number of rotations around the sun uh, that hasn't had uh, times where they've come face to face with pain, and some of us real and significant and persistent and deep pain. No person looks at the landscape of the culture around them uh, and, and never uh, looks out at it and goes, what in the world is, is happening, right? We come to these moments where we look around and go, why is there so much death and destruction and hatred and, and chaos? What in the world is happening? And in the middle of all of this kind of craziness and chaos, why do I feel so insignificant and, and small and, and powerless and and confused, and why am I so unsure of my place in this kind of destructive, kind of crazy, chaotic world? It's not just for the original readers of Hebrews that feel this. We feel it ourselves. We face it as well. How do we, here's the tension, how do we follow what the Bible heralds as such a great Savior how do we believe that Jesus is so great? How do we believe that he created and sustains all things in the universe? How do we believe that he is that powerful to do all of that and he's that good in moments where our lives feel like they're crashing down because of pain? How do we navigate those? Because the human heart tends to think if Jesus really is that powerful, if he really is that good, if he is that much better, then why would he let me suffer? Why wouldn't this great king, why wouldn't he step in and remove me out of it? Uh, if he loves me so much, if I'm so beloved, and if I'm so special and he cares so much, man, why, why does he let me hurt and feel so small in my pain? That's the tension that there's none of us who probably haven't ran into that tension. These questions are not and should not be our 24-7 mentality, right? We don't always want to be there, but the reality is we do end there sometimes. Praise the Lord, not all seasons are weighty and burdensome, but some are. And some point in our lives, when the pain comes, when feelings of insignificance come, these are the questions that come. How do I trust this Jesus when I'm in so much pain? How do I believe he is so high and wonderful? If, if my eyes are filled with tears when I go to bed, how, how do I navigate these? So the author tackles this, and he's going to do it by zooming out, and he's going to look at God's overarching plan over for humanity. He's going to go, okay, Let's look at, you're looking at your pain. Let's look at what the plan was for humanity. Let's start with creation and the original intent. 
And look at uh, verse 5 is where he says it. For it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come. It wasn't angels that God put in charge. It wasn't angels who were meant to rule. It wasn't angels who were meant to have dominion over the entire created order. If you're going, well, who is it? Like the, the Sunday school answer is, well, I'm not really sure, so I'll just say Jesus. No, he's actually talking about Adam and Eve. It's humanity that was meant to be in charge, to have dominion, to rule over creation. And we find this not from some opinion. We find it in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Look at the specificity. Let man or mankind have dominion over all of it. Let, uh, let us make them in our image. Let us place our likeness upon them and let, let them rule the entire thing. Well, how much of it are they meant to, to rule? Well, the fish and the birds. So as far as you can go down in the ocean, yep, that. And as high as you can go up in the sky, yep, they're meant to rule that too. And the livestock and the creeping things, so as wide as you can go from, from west to, to east, that as well, all of it. And then the subsequent verses of Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 8, show how the Bible keeps developing that mandate. It wasn't just in the beginning of Genesis that we hear this. We hear it other places as well. The author references Psalms 8, uh, verses 46. This is or, uh, verses 4 through 6 from the writings of King David. David was uh, one night uh, in awe as he looked upon the stars. So imagine the vastness of all that he was in charge of, and he looked out at the, the stars, and he's in awe that though God has made man less than God, that man is still ruler over it all or meant to be ruler over it all. He's looking at the vastness of all creation and he's thinking, man, I, I feel so small and meaningless compared to this great, great creation. The dichotomy is huge between how small I feel and the vastness of what God has put man in charge of. This is why he says, what is man that you're mindful of him? How, how would you do this? Or what is man that you would care for him? He's saying, God... How would you care for such seemingly small people? How could you give us such a, a beautiful crown of glory and honor to put things in subjection to us, to, to man? And he was thinking back to the original situation for Adam and Eve, and he's marveling at the way that God created. Uh, we were given glory. Uh, we were made in the image of God, which means God literally put his image, his fingerprint upon us, his likeness upon us. The ones made from dirt, he puts his fingerprint on. So you'll be made in my image. And then he gives them a crown, a significant role. Not only do you share my image with me, do you, do you, do you resemble me and do you have part of, of who I am in you? I'm also going to give you a crown, a significant role. So they have a position of being the ones who the world is in subjection to. So they have a, a position, they have glory and honor, and they have authority all in one. This is the original intent. This is kind of breathtaking to say the least. The image of the creator is upon you. The glory of the creator is upon you and is with you and you have this amazing position. Go and subdue it. But something has gone wrong. Look at how the author dives into it. He says, yes, God has put everything under Adam's dominion. Yes, uh, everything is, is meant to be in subjection to man, leaving nothing, absolutely nothing outside of man's control. And we think, okay, that, that's the way it's supposed to be, but that sure isn't what I see, though. 
Right? That's the intent. But that's, that's not the world I live in, and that's not what things look like. I don't see man in charge ruling over and reigning perfectly. I see pain and death and and tragedy, and suffering, and anger, and injustice, and I see confusion over who we are, and what we're even here for, and I see really what feels like man getting subjected to the creation as as we all have a time clock and die and get buried back into the ground. I don't see us reigning and ruling. I see something else, Uh, to which the author says exactly, at the present time we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to man. Something went wrong. Yes, this was the original setup. Yes, this was the original intent. Yes, this was the original plan. This is what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden originally as they walked in the cool of the day with God. But this is also what broke when sin entered the world. So while God was clear in Genesis of the original intent for humanity that we were meant to be uh, in dominion over all of creation. It was supposed to be in subjection to us. He was clear, this is what I've given you. You've been made in my image. This is your role. This is your responsibility. This is your authority. He was clear with that, but he also was clear with the penalty and the outcome of sin, saying, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. It changes everything. You as rulers who came out of the dust to, to rule over it, if you sin against me, we'll have the roles feel reversed and you will taste death. And the world in subjection to you will swallow you back up as you will be buried in it when you die. Those who come from the dirt because of their sin will enter back into the dirt. See, we as humans live right now in what is called the in-between, a place of burden. A constant frustration reigns in our heart over the frustration of knowing deep within that we are created to rule and have this earth in subjection to us and then feeling the pain of death and brokenness and realizing, but it, but it doesn't feel like it actually is. The world is supposed to be under subjection to humanity and yet wave after wave of natural disaster and sickness and war and, and freshly pandemics show that we don't really have very much control we feel helpless in our frailty and confused in our pain. You know, hey man, it wasn't supposed to be this way. This is the great tension that we live in, the in-between, and this tension begs for an answer. Who are we now that sin has broken things? Saw the original intent, meant to rule, be those with dominion. Who are we now, though? And how will we escape this plight in this position? Are we able to? Now, the first question of who are we now that sin has broken things is an interesting one to see unfold because we don't see humanity with a world in subjection to them. Many will answer, okay, because we're not in charge, because the world uh, isn't in subjection to us, many will look across humanity and they'll say, okay, that means that humans now are basically nothing. We weren't made with dominion. We aren't special. We don't have any indwelling honor or any indwelling glory. We're just atoms, random cells, things of chance that the world just kind of made us and did things. We were not made in the image of God. We have no intrinsic worth. We're just here, and then we die, nothing more, nothing less. This is what one group does. Nothing special about us. This mindset would coincide with Rome in biblical times, a belief that man was made for the day and nothing else, Uh, So they would eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow they may die. This is what drives the hedonistic mindset. Get all you can while you can because there's nothing else and you're not special, so get yours while you can. 
Squeeze every drop out of life right now because it's all you get and you don't know when you're going to be taken away. We aren't living for anything greater. There is nothing else. Humanity isn't headed in a specific direction. There is no course in history that we're moving towards. And fundamentally, man is really no more special than a dog because we're just some atoms. We're cells. So we have fun for a bit because you're going to die. This is what one, one group does with this. Now, this mindset leads to a survival of the fittest. Uh, power is right, and it leads to an indulgence culture. Get everything you can while you can. Now, the other major reaction that we see from people trying to deal with who are we now in our brokenness, they go the opposite way, right? One group says, we're nothing special. We're nothing. We're just some atoms. We're just some molecules. We don't matter. There's nothing. You get your time, and then that's it. The other group doubles down as far as they can. They swing the pendulum the other way, and they believe, well, humans are basically gods. We are infinite in wisdom. This uh, rejects there's no fallenness. There's no problem with us. There's no brokenness. And it lives as if God didn't endow humanity with anything because we don't need anything outside of ourselves for perfection. This mindset is, if you're looking around our world right now, this is what is driving the train. Uh, this is what has driven the, the meteoric rise of the modern self. And this believes that in our godness, in our control, in our infinite wisdom, that we get to decide and we get to control everything. We can see this everywhere. And people claim, oh, you're being political. No, you'll see it. This is what drives people going, I choose my sexuality. I choose my gender. I choose my morality. I choose everything around me. Why? Because I'm in the driver's seat. I'm basically God. I will decide all things. I get to be in charge. As Christians, we look at both sides and we say, we reject fully both of those. We reject the first because, yes, the fall has happened. Yes, uh, the, the fall has changed us and marred us because of sin. But the Bible still says that we are made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. We still believe that we are image bearers of God. And because of that, we have dignity and we have worth. Yeah, the fall messed us up. That doesn't mean that we're just random molecules. We are fearfully and wonderfully made humans, knit together in our mother's womb by the hand of the creator. We were given a promise of redemption one day in the image of God placed over us. This is why when people are fighting all the time about the Christian position on abortion and slavery and rights, this is why the Christian believes what they do about that. Why are we not fans of abortion? Because the Imago Dei was placed upon that child. They're not just molecules. Then we go the other side. We reject the second as well. Because the creator made us with an intelligent design, we reject believing that we created ourselves and can control all things. We know that we didn't knit ourselves together. God made us, and we cannot, no matter how hard we try, elevate ourselves to God's station. We know that there's boundaries and limits to what we can do and what we can control and who we are. We cannot put ourselves back together on our own or fix ourselves, but we live towards the day when our dominion will be restored. We reject both. We're more than molecules. We're not God who created ourselves and decide who we are. This leaves room for a third perspective, the one the author points out in the text, one that acknowledges that we were made for dominion over creation, while it also acknowledges that we're not seeing dominion right now, meaning it, it knows we're more than just chance molecules, but it also admits that we are not walking in the fullness of what we are made for. And the author says it this way, we do not see 
yet in the text. What he's saying is what we lost one day will be restored. Everything the first Adam lost, the new Adam will restore. The better Adam, who is Christ, will put us back together fully and finally to defeat everything that broke us. Look at what the author says. Jesus will be crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death that he will endure for humanity. This is his crown of glory. This means Jesus will be given special honor and glory because he fulfilled his messianic purpose when he came to earth. The result of Christ's suffering was therefore redemptive. So we suffer out of our sin and brokenness. We suffer out of the fall, out of what the first Adam did. Christ comes to suffer to make a way to save us outside of that condition. Albert Moeller said it this way, the first Adam plunged humanity into sin and death. The last Adam, who is Jesus, was plunged into death for the sake of humanity. The work of the last Adam undoes the work of the first. When the author says in this text, and there's some confusing things in this text, when the author says, for a short time, made lower than angels, it's talking about how Jesus came to die. Angels don't die. Christ, the infinite, the immortal, the creator, put on flesh for the specific purpose of dying. He was above all things and over all things, and yet he made himself low to enter into human history for one purpose, to suffer, to suffer for us, to deliver us out and make a way out. He came to taste death to do this. But his death wouldn't be like the death of, of those under the, the first Adam. His death would be different for those who believe. Why? Because his death would be redemptive. Our death is a cause and effect. His death brings about redemption. There are those who hate this reality, absolutely cannot stand it, that Christ came to die for his specific purpose was to, to taste the death. And they say, well, what kind of father would, would let this happen? What kind of God is that? And they even claim that the cross is an act of cosmic child abuse, where the unhinged father lashed out and just uncontrollable rage at the sun. And this movement, it's been popularized over history, but it's gained a whole lot of traction again in the last five to 10 years because people cannot understand how love and wrath and justice can all go together. To this, the author says, to those who go, I don't like it. How could God do that? I, I, don't, I don't trust a God who could do that. That's abusive. The author says, unapologetically and not scared. It was fitting. It was fitting that Christ would come and die for the sins. It was fitting that the Son of God, the one for whom and through whom all things exist, should do this. That the author of creation should die because through this, and this is part of the beauty of the text, he's going to bring many sons to glory. See, it's easy for couch commandos to, create, to critique God in their foolishness. But the author says this. This is the way that fit. He's trying to say it's the way that worked. It's the only way that fit. You may not like it. It may be heavy. It may be hard. It may be even hard to, to look at or hard to swallow. But there's no other way for redemption to come than for the Savior to taste death. And to those who do not like it, and the cross becomes folly to them, they forget that it was for the joy set before him that Christ did this. 
the better Adam, that is Jesus. Not joys and fun or, or happy, joyful, wonderful, just like this is the best day of my life, but joy in the fact that through the cross, sinners would be snatched out of their plight and reconciled to God and be put back together. Sinners would have their humanity restored and their eternity secured. And in this, Jesus goes, it's a joy to do it. Is it going to hurt? Is it going to be horrific? Is it going to be terrible? Absolutely. It's worth it, though. It's a joy to bring them home, to bring them back. This idea that Jesus was somehow abused and taken advantage of, we forget he didn't, lay his, or he, didn't, he didn't have his life taken from him. He laid it down. He did this purposely out of love for those that are broken. Now, we can miss this reality as well. Jesus isn't just saving believers from wrath and hell. That's a beautiful part of what he's doing. But part of what this text is showing is he's doing something else as well. It's not just removal of wrath and hell. He's also restoring glory. Yes, that part is kept away from you, but this part is restored to you. Through the suffering and the death of Jesus, wrath was taken away, but glory was also restored. He's saying when he talks about bringing many sons to glory, this, these words are he'll, he'll lead them to glory. In the same way that God led Israel out of their bondage to Egypt in their slavery in the Exodus, Jesus leads those who are under the first Adam out of their bondage in darkness and sin. In other words, Jesus has accomplished the new and greater Exodus. The better Adam brings about the better Exodus by suffering himself to bring an end to our suffering one day completely and fully. Jesus was made the founder and pioneer of our salvation is what the text says. Now, when you're thinking of pioneer, end up thinking of whether it's a movie or something going on where all of a sudden somebody's busting into territory that it's, it's just never been explored and they've got a machete and they're cutting a trail. They're going to a place that's never been looked at. It's, it's a new trail, needs to be blazed. This is the original language. Jesus is blazing a trail where there was no way before. He's making a way where there used to be no way by walking through death and wrath to bring us out of death and wrath. Jesus walked through the most brutal form of torture and death known to mankind. This was the cross, was the most horrific form of suffering that the most brutal culture in the world has ever created. And this is what Jesus tasted. And this made him perfect through suffering, the author says. The mind could probably go like, oh wait, that made him perfect? Well, what, what's, what's going on there? It doesn't mean that Jesus was imperfect before, like he'd sinned and messed up or he wasn't complete. He's pointing how Jesus became, hear me, the perfect one for the fitting plan. A way to look at it is Jesus moved from untested obedience into suffering. And through the suffering that he went into willingly, he moved into proven and tested obedience. I look at it like a puzzle piece, right? You don't just have your puzzle scattered on the table and just take any of them and just make it fit. There's one that fits, one and one alone. And this is showing Jesus is the exact perfect match for what we needed through his suffering, through his obedience. It wasn't just that he didn't sin and avoided doing wrong. 
He was perfected in his obedience to the Father, even unto death. He remained faithful even in suffering in painful circumstance. And that's a message of really exhortation to us. Our job isn't just to stay away from sin. It's to obey the Father as well. Then the author says, the one who sanctifies, Jesus, and those sanctified believers are all of one source. Meaning they come from the same place. This is a reference to the first Adam. The author is pointing out now, and he's going to go into deeper depth into it, especially in the text that we'll look at next week. Jesus shared with us in our humanity, in our human experience, everything that you go through, everything that you experience, he did. There are those who believe that Jesus did not actually walk fully as a human when he came. That essentially Jesus kind of had this facade or this mask uh, or this costume of humanity, but he was actually uh, just fully God. He never actually was fully human. But the reality is if that happened, he wouldn't be able to stand in your place and he wouldn't be able to identify with you in your suffering. But since Christ was fully human, he could stand in your place. And then the pain that you face and the tears that you cry and the moments that hurt, he goes, I know what that's like. I understand what that's like. Let's circle all the way around. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, the struggle we face is how do we believe that this Jesus is better? How do we place our faith in him and follow him if he allows us to suffer and won't pull us out immediately? How could this good, loving, strong Savior let us suffer so much? And the author says, Jesus didn't just let you suffer. That couldn't be further from the truth of what his reaction was to your suffering. As if he were just calloused and unmoved and uncaring about your plight and your pain. What is this text lavishing on us? He didn't leave you alone, he entered into your suffering. Suffering again, we we need to make sure we get this. He entered into your suffering, a suffering that he did not have to enter into, to put an end to your suffering once and for all through his sacrifice in your place. Yes, it's true. We don't see this fully yet, though it's already happened. But one day, all who believe in Jesus will not just see it and taste it, they'll live in it and they'll experience it and they'll be their reality. They'll live under the second Adam in the renewed creation. All their tears will be wiped away and their brokenness will be restored. And one day this Jesus will reign over us. The text says something just incredible. And he'll sing with us to the Father who made the plan for it. Now, this answer, if he, he stepped into your pain, he does care. Some will find it utterly unsatisfying. It's it's not good enough. They'll still say, a good God wouldn't do that. The future reality of Jesus' realized consummation of his work, a future hope, will not be enough to eclipse current pain. In essence, some will say, I will not accept this suffering. He is not good. 
I will not trust him as good. I will not think he is good. I will not put my faith in him as if he is good because Jesus didn't pull me out of my current suffering. Immediately means he is not worthy of my faith. To them, it will not matter that there's a future hope. What they will do is they will judge God's plan and say, well, that plan wasn't fitting. It wasn't good enough for me. It didn't do enough. And they'll judge Jesus going, he wasn't the perfect Savior. If he was perfect, he would have done it this way. And unlike Jesus, hear me, they will not trust God in their suffering and with their suffering. And they will not move from untested obedience to tested faith. And they'll be like the seed that fell among the thorns. The cares of the world, the pain of the world, and the suffering that they go through will choke the life out of any faith that could have ever been there. Some will say, it's not good enough, I don't care. If he was good, he wouldn't let this happen. But, here's this beautiful, beautiful part of the text. I had never, I'd never seen this before or realized what was happening. One side will say, I don't care, it's not good enough. And on another side, those who believe that Jesus is better in spite of their current sufferings, those who hold fast a hope in Christ, even in tears, those who have been afflicted by the remnants of the first Adam, and yet they stay, and their faith is maintained even in suffering, Jesus looks at them, He says, I'm not ashamed of you, brother. Those words are breathtaking. This isn't a term just for guys. It means family. uh, Jesus says, just as I have trusted and obeyed the Father in my suffering, you have trusted and obeyed me and the Father in yours. Well done. I am not ashamed of you. I identify with you. Man, that's been so hard. Look at you holding on. See, there's a deep part of some of us that just feels like incredible failures. Our prime emotion is just shame. Shame after shame after shame. And you begin to think that God could never truly love you or be proud of you or care for you. Right? The, the mindset is that maybe God puts up with you. He doesn't actually like you. He probably doesn't even want you. And this text lavishes you with love. If you hold on to faith in your trial, it loves you by saying all that you're thinking is not true. Jesus says specifically, I call you brother. I call you family. I call you friend. I'm not ashamed of you. I don't think that you're worthless. I don't shake my head at every mistake that you make like you do. I see my family who I bought with my blood and who has endured well, terribly, horrifically hard things and hard days. Hear this for the shame that hides in your heart. Jesus says, I'm glad to, I'm proud to, I'm overjoyed to call you family. You've suffered well. I'm not ashamed of you. Well done, good and faithful one. Well done, hold on. I can't wait to show you the fullness of what I've got. As we are building through this book, all these names for Jesus, right? The better, the better prophet, the better priest, the better king, the, 
the perfect, the sanctifier, the one who sat down, the one who ascended with still a whole lot more names coming, the surprise to you and I. So we thought just Jesus was getting the names. In this text, you get one as well. If your faith is in him and if you hold on to him in the middle of the chaos and the trial and the pain, your name becomes I am the one or the one whom I am not ashamed. Let that sink into your soul. The enemy's primary tool against you, you are so worthless. You always screw it up. You always get it wrong. You're never what you're supposed to be. You're always your failures. And Jesus says, none of that is true. I'm not ashamed of you. I believe the Holy Spirit wants some of you to hear that in the depth of your core. Like some of you maybe say that and you know the theological truth of that, but you don't feel that and that's not what the Father wants for you. What the Lord wants to tell you is you're not your failures. You're not your misgivings. You're not your past. You're not your moments of unbelief. You're not what your mother or father said that you were. You're not a failure. You're not an outcast and you're not forgotten. This is what we get lavished on us in this text. You are the one in whom Jesus says, man, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm glad you're with me. I'm glad to be with you. And the one who is proud of you and glad to be with you and not ashamed of you then says in the middle of the pain and the tears now, come draw near to me and I'll give you rest even in the middle of it and I'll pull you all the way out of it later. For you and, and I, some of us may need to profess it to another believer today. We, we get really kind of bound up. And what does confession look like? Because there's freedom in confession, the word says, and I think some of us go like, I don't want to go into like Catholic territory. What do I do? No, no, no. We're not doing that. But there's ways to confess. I think that the Lord may want some of us to confess maybe today that Jesus is telling me to leave my shame. He's telling me to believe the better message about what he has done for me, that I'm not supposed to feel that way, and he's wanting to take me out of it. I confess that I've been struggling with shame, not to put me in more shame, but to say today he told me he wants to pull me out of it. Praise God. Will you pray with me about that? There's power in bringing it out and saying, hey, I ain't doing that anymore. I am his and he is mine and he loves me and he cares for me. Now again, this text was to a group of people who's thinking about walking away from Jesus. Context matters, right? Suffering came for them. Things were hard. The pain was hard. They're looking over their shoulder going, would it be easier if I just, you know, just cut ties and went the other way? And the author says to them the same thing that he says to us in our pain, stay. Stay. Stay even in your pain. Stay. I know it hurts. Even in your tears, there's a promise of hope for you. Do not believe or do not leave because of your current pain. Stick with the one who came for you in your pain, connects with you in your pain, pulls you out of your pain, and gives you a new name and a better word over you. Your pain may not end today. The other says stay anyway. Church, it's my great hope that we will receive these words in Hebrews in a way that the original audience was meant to. That every time something comes at us that our knee-jerk reaction wouldn't be to question God. Why did you do that? Why did you let that happen? That we would be able to walk up confidently and go, that hurt. I don't understand. But that we'll trust him in the middle of it. Instead of questioning him at each point, that maybe we would gaze at our future hope more when pain comes. 
and maintain that hope even at times when our eyes are filled with tears and we cannot speak. Until that hope is consummated, what do we do? We come and we gather. We pay much closer attention to what we first heard. And then we come to the table and take and remember what he has done. So that's what we'll do today. Again, we'll come to the table band. You guys can come back up and we're going to remember what Jesus has done all over again. That he speaks into our suffering and he speaks into our sin and he brings about a promise of redemption. And hear the beauty of this. He doesn't just pull you out of wrath. He restores the glory that you lost as well. And then he meets you where you're at in the middle of your suffering. And his body and blood is broken to redeem you now and promise you more later. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to play, I think, three or four songs. But friends, I pray that we would wrestle with this text appropriately, see the beauty of what Jesus has done in the middle of our pain, hold on, and then come to the table and take and remember his body was broken and his blood was shed. You're not alone in your pain. He bled to prove he cares. What else could he give? He's given you everything he has and promised that one day he will end it and reign and rule over creation once again. Yes, we don't see ourselves in in dominion over all things. One day we will. We will not taste the pain that we do. And the perfect king will reign perfectly over us. Man, my hope is that your heart would be encouraged as you come to the table and take. And that shame would be broken today in light of that. Would you stand with me, Father? We pray that you would do your work in us. You have been good and you have been so kind, Lord. Lord, would you show us the reality of this text? May we feel it. May we move past just saying that you are not ashamed. And Holy Spirit, we ask and invite you, would you come and make us feel the reality that you're not ashamed, that you care, that you love, that you are a good Savior. He says, man, I'm proud of you. Hold on. Lord, would you comfort our souls? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and ruthlessly break up the shame in the corners of our heart. Would you protect our minds from the enemy? Every time the enemy gives us a name that is not our own, Holy Spirit, would you scream louder that is not who they are? I pray that we would see that. Would you be glorified? Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, would you make your promise more real to us? May your hope not feel so far off, God. We pray that. Receive our worship. Draw near to our hearts, Lord. We plead and pray for revival. Come, draw near. Work in us, Holy Spirit. Let us see the beauty of the Savior. We pray that in your name. Amen.